0: My name is Dave. Again, if I haven't met you, I'd love to get to know you. We're going to spend some time now studying the Bible together. So, this is a central part of what we do each week. We study the Bible because we believe that it speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. We're in a series right now called Ancient Faith. Ancient Faith. So, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is an outline of a bunch of Old Testament heroes who trusted that this world is not all there is. They were looking forward to being with God. Ultimately, they learned to walk with God by faith. And I think this is an especially important time in our culture uh, where we more and more have this weird thing that sometimes is called chronological snobbery. The idea is modern people know what's best. We have science, we have technology, so of course we're wise. I would argue that actually we have more information at our fingertips than ever before in history and less wisdom, less wisdom. So we want to look back at these ancient heroes of faith and look back to the Old Testament and recognize, yes, there are a lot of differences culturally, right? We're not uh, living in the ancient Middle East. Yes, there are differences covenantally, God's people, We're under the old covenant previously, and now we're under the new covenant. We're not bound to all of the same ceremonial laws and national laws of Israel, but we are under the same covenant of walking with God by faith. We are bound to trust God instead of trusting in ourselves. And so there are a lot of helpful uh, connections and similarities. As we look back into the Old Testament, we recognize that this whole idea of God saving us by grace and us depending on him by faith it's not a brand new thing that just kind of sprung up out of nowhere. Jesus was the fulfillment of things that God had promised long ago. So this week, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4 and Hebrews 11 verse 4. So what we're going to do is I'm going to start off with Hebrews eleven four. 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab those black Bibles and turn to page 1007. 1007, and that's where you'll find Hebrews 11. But then you might also want to put a little placeholder, uh, a little uh, a finger in the very beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 4 as well, and that can be found on page 3 in the Black Bibles. And I've, I, I say this a lot, if you don't own your own Bible, keep it. We, w- we would love for you to have your own real paper Bible to flip through and to read and to underline. So you can keep that and take it home, and we'll restock the chairs, if you're grabbing one of them from under the chairs there. Um, So the sermon today is called Sibling Rivalry. Sibling Rivalry. What we have in our story are the first two sons of Adam and Eve. And it's a story of contrasts. Remember in Genesis chapter three, we have the fall into sin. God promises that there's gonna be a son of Eve that will come and will defeat evil will defeat the serpent, the ancient dragon. And in that story, as it's unfolding, Genesis 3, now into Genesis 4, we're not told yet when that son is coming. So we turn to Genesis chapter 4 saying, is this the son? Is this the one that's gonna defeat evil once and for all? So in our story in Genesis chapter 4 that I'm gonna read here in a minute, we have two sons that are born. And I wanna start off before we read our text in Hebrews 11, just giving you a visual illustration of the two names of the first two brothers that were ever born, okay? How many of you have brothers and sisters? You always get along perfectly. Raise your hand if you always get along perfectly with your brothers and sisters. Okay, one of you. Thank you very much, young man. Proud of you. Most of us do not, and you too. Thank you. Way to go. All right, a couple of little kids here get, get along perfectly, <laughs> Uh, with their their brothers and sisters. There was some serious fighting. There was some serious sibling rivalry as we open up the pages of our Bible, as we look at the first two sons that were ever born. And they have two different uh, names. And here are the two names. I'm gonna give you a visual impression of the Hebrew words for their names. The first son, his name is something like this, okay? I'm just gonna say construction tool, right? This is actually a demolition saw. But I'm just gonna say power tool, That's kind of what his name meant, Cain. Cain, it comes from the Hebrew word for got or possess or even production, construction, something that's made or accomplished. When he was named, Eve was saying something along the lines of like, look at what we've done. Look at us, right? It was a name that meant something like strong and powerful, the firstborn son after the fall into sin. Here's what the next son, his name, This is his name. You see that? That's his name. For those of you that might be listening to this later, I just sprayed a mister, right? His name is Chabel. We say Abel. And if you remember our Ecclesiastes series, we said that that word in Hebrew means mist, vapor. It's like smoke. It's like bubbles. It's like something that that you can't really grasp. It doesn't really last. It's kind of like the first son was named Strong, And the second son was named weak or nothing. The perfect setup for a sibling rivalry, right? So let's read, starting with Hebrews. We're gonna start with the the New Testament first. Reading Hebrews, what we're gonna do all summer long is we're gonna read the setup in, in Hebrews and how it sets us up to show how these Old Testament heroes had faith. And then we'll go back and unpack it more from the story in the Old Testament. So starting in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, verse four says, by faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So Abel was commended as righteous by faith. Again, we see these connections, Old Testament to New Testament, in the same way we are commended by faith. Do we know more of the details about how God does this through Jesus, forgiving us and giving us life, taking our sins on the cross? Yes, we we have more details, and that's a glorious and beautiful thing. But it's clear that Abel, just like us, is commended as righteous by faith, not by his accomplishment, not by his strength, right? Remember, his name meant vapor, weakness, mist. He was commended by his faith, by simple trust in God. Let me pray for us and then we'll unpack the details of the story from Genesis 4. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we pray that we would hear your voice. Help us that think we know these stories to remain open to what you have to say. There's more you want to reveal to us. You want to guide us. You want to shape us to be more like Jesus. And Lord, help those of us that are uh, questioning, that are skeptical, to be open-minded that you speak. Help us to hear your words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea, sibling rivalry, is a contrast between two brothers. Often, uh, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, we're we're given two ways that we can relate to God. And Hebrews 11.4 tells us, one was by faith. Abel related to God by faith. His name means mist or vapor. Cain, his name, means strong. He related... The opposite of faith. What's the opposite of faith? Well, it's by his strength. And so we're gonna get a series of contrasts here. The first contrast in my outline is strength versus weakness. Two ways to relate to God, strength versus weakness. The second contrast we're gonna get as we look at Cain and Abel is murder versus love. Murder versus love. It's a little easier for you to guess which one's the good and bad on that one, right? Murder versus love. The third contrast is judgment Versus condemnation, I mean commendation. I'm gonna mix that word up a lot. Judgment versus commendation, commending, right? The approval of God. Judgment versus commendation. So we've got three contrasts. We're gonna start with the contrast of strength versus weakness. And so now we'll turn to Genesis 4 and we'll start looking in detail at this story. As I said, in the Black Bibles, you can find it on page 3. In my Bible, slightly different edition, it's page four. It's gonna be somewhere around there, right? Very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter four. It's the fourth chapter in our Bibles. And we have the contrast set up here of strength versus weakness. And we're gonna see this in the first few verses of the story as it unfolds. Strength versus weakness. Verse one says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. That's the biblical kind of knowing. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So as I said, there's a word blay in the Hebrew there. Cain and gotten sound similar. uh, And this word is used in a lot of other ways, as I said, to mean like production or strength or accomplishment. And so she says, he's Cain. I've gotten a man. I've produced a man with the help of the Lord. Verse two, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Abel, it doesn't even tell us. Abel just means mist or vapor. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. They both bring offerings. One is just something. The other is the fat, the best. And God says, this is a good offering and this is a bad offering. They're in relationship with God. They're in the relationship with the Lord, Yahweh, the Jehovah of the Old Testament. And he says, this is good and this is bad. Now again, I wanna back up and say, what, what's the expectation that we have here of, of Adam and Eve? The expectation of Adam and Eve is that they're gonna have a son that's gonna defeat evil. They have their firstborn son He's strong. She names him strong, gotten, production, accomplishment, and she's assuming that's what the the story is setting us up for. She's assuming that he is going to defeat sin and evil once and for all, and so I want you to begin reading the Old Testament as a story. Doesn't mean it's not true, but it's written as a story Uh, with all the twists and turns and irony and surprises of any great story. These are stories with suspense. We're left hanging in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have just blown up the whole world and ruined everything by their sin. And then God promises, but you're going to have a son that's going to fix it. Chapter 4, we start chapter 4. She has a son. She names him strong, production, gotten, look at what I've done, accomplishment. She names the other son mist, vapor. We have this contrast between strength And weakness, strength, and weakness. And this is really important for us, especially in this congregation, Grace Bible Church. I don't know all of you really well, but I know many of you. And the Lord has blessed us with a very strong congregation. Many of you are very gifted. You're physically strong, you're intelligent, you're good looking, God's given you a lot of great experiences, you've accomplished great things. So there's a temptation that you will have that you need to be especially attuned to. You'll be tempted to rely on your strength, to brag about your accomplishment, to think that your strength gives you a special place of blessing before God. Instead of recognizing like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, that when you stand before a holy God, you, I, we are undone we should say, woe is me. When we stand before a holy God, we should say, I am but a vapor. I'm a mist. I am unholy. I am a sinner. And so we have to figure out what do we do with actual strengths that God has given us when those strengths do not win us a seat at God's table? What are those strengths for? What do they tell us about God? Do they, do they speak that we're sinless and we're better than other people? Or are they just gifts that God has temporarily given to us to use for his glory? I believe it's the second. As we stand before God, we should have the attitude of seeing ourselves like Abel, a mist, a vapor, not like Cain, and stand before God and say, look at, look at me, look at how strong I am, look at how great I am. Leonard Bernstein has been quoted uh, talking about the most difficult instrument to play. So Leonard Bernstein was the super famous conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, well-known musician, great thinker about music. He was asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play? And without hesitation, he replied, the second fiddle. The second fiddle. Do you get it? Second fiddle is by far the most difficult instrument to play. Bernstein says, Is it Bernstein or Bernstein? Steen. Okay, I'm going to go with uh, majority vote Bernstein. Okay. Bernstein says, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that speak to the human problem that started with Adam and Eve saying, no, 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 we're not going to listen to what God says. We're going to listen to the serpent. We're going to listen to that voice inside our heart. We're going to do what feels right. We are going to be our own gods. We will be in charge. We will take first place. We all replay that same sin. We all do the same thing. Don't raise your hands, but I know some of you have thought this thought that that I have thought sometimes, which is like, if I was Adam and Eve, I wouldn't have done it, right? I would have just trusted God. I have bad news for you. No, you would not. (laughs) And our life plays that out. We said, I will be first. And God says, trust me. And we say, no, I will be first. I want to be God. I want to be in charge. I want to be the strong one. God says, trust me in your weakness. It's this beautiful picture that Paul talks about where Paul says he prayed multiple times that God would take away this thorn, this suffering in his life. He says, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and God answered me that my power is sufficient for you. God tells us repeatedly that in our weakness, we will learn to depend on him by faith. We will learn that God is enough. So this brings us back to the the question of what do we do With our strength, what do we do with the actual strengths we have? Because as I said, I, I know you guys, and a lot of you are really strong. Here's the thing. When we have a strength, we have to recognize, first of all, it came from God. It doesn't say anything about our moral framework, right? Even if you've worked really hard to develop the strength, God gave it to you in the first place. It is a stewardship that he gave for you to use for his glory. So should we use our strengths? Yes, we should use our strengths, but we should use them in dependence on God, trusting him by faith, saying, God, you are in charge. You tell me where to go. Do you want me to use this strength here or there? We pray. We remain humble. We see, God, you are our leader. You're the one that shows me what to do with this. And as I stand before you, God, my strength doesn't bring me into the inner circle. It's only what you have accomplished for me through Jesus Christ. It's God's strength that brings us into relationship with God himself. Our strength is not enough. Even our righteous acts are as filthy rags, the prophet Isaiah says. The best that we can do is not enough. When we stand before God, we stand before God, a bell, a mist, a vapor, nothing. But God doesn't leave it there. He says, I love you. I'm going to send my son Jesus to give you strength to bring you to myself. It's fascinating here when we look at the actual offerings that they give because Hebrews 11 says this is a, a play out of how they saw God, right? And so the way that they brought offerings to God is a reflection of their heart posture towards God. And so the picture is that Cain just gave something and Abel gave the best, the fat portions, right? I love that word, um, let me read it again. It says in verse three, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, right? This is not about the fruit of the ground versus the animals, right? Some people get off sidetracked on that. No, it's the contrast here is Cain brought something and Abel brought the best that he had. That's the contrast. And that shows us, that gives us a picture into their hearts, right? Right? Hebrews 11 draws that connection for us. It says, this is telling us something about what they believed about God. Cain approaches God and he's like, I'm strong, I'm accomplished. Yeah, I'll give you something, God. Abel comes before God and is like, I'm nothing, I'm gonna give you the best that I have. I'm gonna give you my heart. There's a difference between uh, giving God something and giving God the fat portions. Uh, Fat portions, think think like moist brisket, burnt ends, the, the fatty, right? Like that's, that's what they're saying here. If, if you're not a meat eater, think ice cream. Um, if, if you don't like ice cream, I'm running out of analogies here. But, but he's saying, I'm bringing you the best, right? I'm, I'm, he's bringing the good stuff to God. He's like, God, here, have all of it. Because it all belongs to you anyway. Have the best. Uh, the way that the Old Testament describes this is the first fruits, Right? Here, here take something really good. You're offering something good and glorious. You're not holding back and saying, God, I don't trust you. I got to take care of myself. You're saying, God, I trust you. So I, I can just give myself away to you. And this is a really important contrast. More and more, there's this thing called the prosperity gospel that's preached that says, if you give God a certain amount of offering, then God will owe you. That's not approaching God by faith. Is there a blessing in giving? There certainly is. There's a blessing in giving, right? But that giving should flow out of the overflow of recognizing I'm nothing without God. God has given me everything, and so I'm giving cheerfully, saying, God, here's a gift because I love you. I'm giving you my heart. That's different than Cain bowing up to God and saying, God, I'm strong and you owe me something. So, two different ways to approach God do you approach God with humility or with strength? in weakness or in strength. Abel gave God his heart. Cain gave God a ritual. He just went through the motions. And this is really interesting because this simultaneously condemns both religion and indulgence, right? This is condemning both religion and indulgence. Sometimes we get off the train of the gospel way of relating to God by faith, trusting that God is a God of grace and approaching him by faith. Sometimes we fall off that through religion, through ritual. So my question for you is, is there kind of a going through the motions where like Cain, you're approaching God with your strength and saying, God, I'm strong, you owe me. God, I've done the right thing, now you better bless me. God, I'm putting my quarters into your vending machine. I gave a little, you owe me more now. I read my Bible five days this week, God, you better, you better bless me. We can often do good things, and then demand blessing from God. doesn't mean we should stop doing good things. It means we should approach God with the right heart. Are there rituals that you're falling into where you're like, this is, this is a good thing I've done. I'm strong. I'm good. God should bless me. I'm better than those other people, right? Do you, have you begun to approach God in that way, which is not the way of faith? This also condemns uh, self-indulgence. Is there a way that you're relying on self-indulgence? It's really just the, the opposite of religion, but they're two kind of false ways to approach God where we say, again, I'm gonna put in the quarters into this vending machine instead of religion and tradition, I'm putting quarters into this vending machine if I'm just gonna indulge my own flesh. I'm gonna do what feels good. I'm gonna look into my own heart and say, I'll, I'll pay you back. But what ends up happening, you, you're then held ransom by your own heart, right? It's a really weird time in history that we live in where more and more people are saying, just discover yourself. Just figure out who you are and that will save you. All you have to do is look inside. And I would say that's a very dangerous way to approach God. That's the way of strength. That's saying, what am I about? What do I love? What are my desires? And approaching God from a posture of strength instead of a posture of weakness, asking God to save you. We believe here that giving is a part of worship, and we'll continue to encourage you to give financially, make offerings, so to speak, to the Lord, but that should be as a cheerful giver. It should be because you believe that Jesus has given everything to you, and then you say, God, I wanna give to you. I wanna give back. I wanna give back by helping the poor. I wanna give back by helping the church share the message of Jesus and who he is. I wanna give back because, God, I believe you've given to me, but we don't give to get something from God. We give because we believe he's given to us, and we're overflowing and we're taken care of, and God loves us. Another interesting contrast here, just because of the the context of Genesis and what's unfolding, is in Genesis chapter two. Uh, I'm not quite ready for the next one yet, I'm sorry. One more part of this last point, and then we'll move on. Um, this contrast of strength versus weakness could be seen as a contrast between the strength of our vocation, right? You're, you're gifted at certain things, you're good at certain things. Adam and Eve were told to spread culture to uh, have dominion over the world, to be fruitful and multiply, right? And so they're, they're kind of doing what God has told them to do. They're like, look, here, we got these children. We're doing this thing, right? And you can't, you can't really blame them for this, but you see Adam and Eve living vicariously through their children. That ever happened to you? I know sometimes I saw this, this kind of scary thing raise up in me when I would watch my kids be really successful at something. And I was like, well, I was a failure, but my kids are succeeding, Right? And all my hopes will come true as I see my kids succeed. And that's a, that's a dangerous place to go. You see something like that happening here with Adam and Eve as well as they name these children. Here's our firstborn. Look at what they're gonna accomplish. But again, that's part of what God called them to. God called them to use their strengths, to have dominion, to build culture. Here's the thing, that commission that God gave to Genesis and to all humanity in Genesis 1 and 2, we are all bound to that, right? You are to go to work you are to be strong, you are to be gifted, you are to use your gifts to serve other people and glorify God, but those won't work right unless you're coming under what was Jesus' final words in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. So it's really important for us to nest what I would call the Cultural Commission under the Great Commission. The Cultural Commission doesn't work. Using our strengths for God's glory won't work unless we are apprenticing ourselves to Jesus. That's the Great Commission. He says, make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey me. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember that I'll be with you always until the end of the age. We've got the the Great Commission, Jesus' final marching orders. Go tell people that I'm here, that I've come for them, that I love you, that I've died for your sins. And we've got the Cultural Commission. Build cities, have jobs, build families, right? Right? Cultural commission only works when it's nested, when it's in submission to the great commission. All right, next point, murder versus love. Murder versus love, verse five, again, we'll repeat. It says in verse five, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. God did not regard his offering, didn't approve of it. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Here we see a relationship of God with Cain. God is pleading with Cain not to go the way of Adam and Eve and say, I refuse to live in submission to you. He's pleading with Cain to come back to him in relationship as a good father. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So what happened? Did Cain come back to God and say, you know what, you're right. Help me, God. I need your help. No, he said, I can do this on my own. I'm the strong one. I can take care of this problem. Verse eight, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is yes. At least we should be. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Murder versus love. Murder versus love. We have the strong one that says, how dare you, God, disagree with me? I'm gonna have to take matters in my own hands. Versus love. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, actually, you are. Jesus talks about this pretty clearly in the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the Great Samaritan. He's like, well, who is my brother? I don't really have to love everybody, do I? And Jesus makes it pretty clear. Yeah, you do. If you're gonna follow Jesus, you gotta love everybody. Be careful about the ethic of neutrality. Be very careful about the ethic of neutrality. It's easy for you and me to think, I haven't murdered anybody, right? So I'm good. God calls us to love. God calls us to love. And it all starts with this heart posture towards God, where Cain is like, how dare you not accept what I've given you? How dare you, God, not function the way I want you to function? Now, we're tempted to read this and read it simply in just a performance kind of Uh, way of of reading things because as human beings, we're always slipping back into that. So I want to give you a really helpful New Testament verse that kind of summarizes how we should relate to God, not by our works, but by grace. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Really good verse for you to memorize as just kind of like a template for this is how I relate to God. I am not saved by my performance, by the works that I do. I'm saved by God's grace which I receive by faith. That means I trust in God's graciousness. I trust in God's kindness that Jesus saves me by taking my sins upon himself on the cross, and by giving me his resurrection life. I can't save myself. But then it goes on, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, in, in verse 10 to say, but there are good works that God has made us to do, right? There are good works for us to do. And so there's a very clear contrast there. We don't relate to God by what we can do. We relate to God by what he's done to us. So when we read that and we read everything that Hebrews says about the way that Abel related to God, it's clear to us that God wasn't saying, if you do well, right? Like if you perform and you're perfect, then I'll bless you and everything will be fine, right? He's saying, come back to me. It's an invitation to come back to God. So I want you to hear this very clearly. Right now, you might be really frustrated with God. Things have not gone well with you and you are tempted to double down on your strength. You're tempted to double down and do your own thing. And that, frankly, leads to murder. It leads to death. Back in the 70s, there was this thing where um, you could go to the mall and they would have these tigers and there'd be like these little baby tigers that you could pet and have your picture taken with them. I had this done back in the 70s. I don't know if they do this anymore. I don't think they even have malls anymore. Do malls exist? I don't know. And it was, they were so adorable. They were soft. They were like little puppy dogs, right? And you could pose with these little tigers. What God is saying here is that this little tiger that seems so soft and cuddly, sin, is something that's gonna grow into an evil monster and kill you. There's a picture. That's what tigers end up becoming, right? They don't stay cute little baby cubs, right? What do you call them? Do you call them a tiger cub? cub? It's not a puppy. Yeah, tiger cub. Okay, things I wish I had thought about before I start talking. <laughs> Baby tiger, tiger cub. They're really cute. Guys, that's the way sin starts off. A lot of times you sin and you're like, that wasn't bad. That was, that was actually kind of nice. You know, my mom told me the lightning bolt would strike me if I ever did that. I did it. Nothing happened. And you're petting that little tiger. And you're like, oh, this is pretty nice. And you're gonna have to keep feeding that tiger more and more. And eventually it's gonna destroy you. That's how sin works. And we get all mixed up about this because we've tried sin and it didn't eat us the first time. So we're like, everything's fine. I'm cool. I'm strong, right? We go into the mindset of Cain operating out of our strength. I don't need God to tell me what to do. I can do my own thing. I can create my own identity. That's where we are as a culture right now. As a culture, we're saying, whatever you want to do is okay. Go do it. As a matter of fact, not only is it okay, it will save you. Following your desires will save you. Which is crazy, right? Because that's never worked for any civilization in the history of the world. Every other civilization has had some variation of this whole idea of self-control. This whole idea of don't just give in to all your basest desires because they'll kill you, Right? But today, we're in a time in history where we're like, no, it's great. Do whatever you want to, right? Just follow your heart. Create your own identity. Whatever random thought you have of that will feel good, go with that. And everything will be great. And the Scripture says, man, there, there are sins that don't seem like sin because they feel good the first few times or the first few years you engage in those things. But God is saying, I know better than you, and this is gonna turn into a monster. It's gonna clobber you, it's gonna eat you, it's gonna destroy you. God is warning us because he loves us. So sin can grow, and it grows from a root cause. When we talk about the contrast of murder versus love, Jesus talks about this, the contrast between hatred and murder. He says hatred actually becomes murder. Matthew 5.21, you've heard that it was said, of those of old you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's like, well, yeah, but verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Be careful about the ethic of neutrality. You think if I haven't murdered anybody, I'm doing good. God says you shouldn't hate your brother. You should love your brother. Why don't you love your brother? Why don't I love my brother? because I'm not fully believing how much God loves me in those moments. If we remember that we've committed cosmic treason against God, and he reached out to us in Jesus, that will melt our heart. That will begin to change us so that we no longer hate our brother in the same way. First John talks about this quite a bit. We'll begin to love our brother. And John is clear in 1 John. He's like, little children, I write these things so you may not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So there's this pressure on us. Love your brothers, love your brothers. You don't love your brother, go to Jesus. Jesus, I'm struggling. I don't, love, I don't love my brother. Matter of fact, I'm pretty angry at my brother. Pretty angry at my sister. Pretty angry at my neighbor. Run to Jesus, say, Jesus, help me. But don't give in to that anger. Don't justify that anger. Here's the thing on anger, y'all. Anger is one of those things where we can imagine just anger, Right? I think it often comes from a place of justice. Scripture's pretty clear, though we don't see everything. We are not perfectly just like God. So anger plus human being is a very dangerous combination. It's a very dangerous combination. Now there are, again, there are times when we should be righteously angry about injustice. We just have to know that that is very dangerous. We're playing with fire. James says it this way in James chapter one. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So again, I can, you know, go into my philosophical mode and be like, I can imagine righteous anger and that's appropriate. Okay, but it will not accomplish the righteousness of God. It's not gonna get you there. Another way of saying it is your self-righteous anger will only get you so far as the strength of Cain will. But if you take that righteous anger, like, God, this just seems wrong, but here you go. I'm giving it to you because, God, you're the judge. We offer it to him. That's it's a pattern of prayer we see again and again in the Psalms. God, why, why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting this injustice go on? Okay, God, act, move, bring justice, Lord. We give those things to him. Recognizing my anger can't accomplish God's righteous uh, desires. Proverbs 29:11 says, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Fool gives full vent to his anger, but a righteous man keeps himself under control. Just to be clear, the, the Christian virtue of self-control does not mean you never feel the anger. It means you're constantly offering it back to God. Man, I'm angry about that. All right, Lord. Lord, you got more business. Here we go. Lord, I'm angry. Will you do something with this? Will you help me? Will you accomplish your purposes? Will you show me what I can accomplish? Because I know I cannot accomplish your righteousness through my anger. Help me. Show me a next step I can take. Maybe I should report this to the law. Maybe I should do something. But I know I can't fix it all myself. And we constantly offer those things back to the Lord because a fool gives full vent to his anger but a wise man keeps himself under control. Anger is like a little tiger cub that'll eventually eat you alive. Okay, I'm skipping some notes here. We're running out of time. The last contrast is judgment versus commendation. Commendation. We are commended by God if we approach him by faith, or we are judged by God if we say, I can do my own thing. I don't need you, God, right? Judgment versus commendation one of my favorite definitions of hell, ultimate judgment, comes from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says basically heaven is us saying to God, thy will be done, right? I trust you, God, you're God. And C.S. Lewis says hell is God saying to us, thy will be done. Hell is God giving us over to our desires, Romans chapter one. Say, I wanna do my own thing. God says, okay, eternity, doing your own thing. You don't want me? Okay, eternity without me. It's a paradox. It's hard for us to understand. The picture of hell is always fire, it's horror. It is supposed to be repulsive. There's a lot of uh, former evangelicals talking about, I can't believe in Jesus anymore because hell exists. Um, When Jesus talks about hell, he's like, it should be horrifying. The idea that people would not want to be with God, like, yeah, we should be repulsed by that. It should make you feel sick. It should make you cry. It is repulsive. It is awful. And hell is the greatest monument to free choice in the Bible. God's saying, okay, here you go. You you want to be without me? Okay, You, you can be without me. As I said, that's a paradox because it's hard to understand how you can be without the source of life. There's some kind of like way we actually survive, but we survive and it's like eternal death. Jesus says it's like fire. It's like being forever locked out of the party that we want to be inside of. And we have a little taste of that in the story here. Um, Judgment, verse 10. He says in verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God knows. I said before, sometimes we sin, it feels good, nothing happens, and we're like, my mom was wrong, I can get away with this. But God knows. He's like, I I hear, I see, I know what's happened. Your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. As the story unfolds in a narrative fashion, again, these are stories that are teaching us something. We see a replay and a a deepening of what happened with Adam and Eve, right? There's a further curse of the ground and the farming. There's more difficulty and more pain here that Cain's gonna experience. And there's also more wandering and distance from paradise. And so we see two of the curses from Genesis chapter three kind of uh, increased here in Cain's sin. It goes on in verse 12. Uh, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is a fascinating wordplay. Again, it's not the exact same Hebrew Uh, word, but it's Hebrew parallelism where Cain's name means something like strength and production. And he's saying, yeah, the curse now is the ground is not going to give you its strength and its production any longer. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Verse 15, it's a little taste of mercy here. God says, then the Lord said to him, not so. Cain's like, this is too much. This is too much. This is too much. God says, not, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod means the land of wandering. See? goes off and he settles in the land of wandering. He's farther out. We see humanity getting farther and farther away from God's presence, even as God is inviting us back in. He's saying, you don't fight your way back in the door. You don't get yourself back into Eden by being strong and by being productive and being the best at your job and having the most money and having the most indulgence or fun or whatever it might be that is becoming an idol in your life right now that's not how you get back into paradise God says the way you get back into paradise is approaching me by faith say God help me help me I need you so again we've got the judgment of God he's like you're you're out you're cursed you're done he's pushing him to the outside Cain says it's too much and God says not so There's always a way back. If you're enduring some difficulty right now, I want you to know, first of all, I'm sorry that you're going through that. I don't don't know exactly what's happening in your life. But you may be feeling, man, God is hurting me. He's casting me out. He's pushing me aside. It's too much for me to bear. And God is saying, not so. Come back to me. Come back to me. God is a God of grace. He continually reveals himself as a God of grace. Even in Old Testament passages that we read on a first reading because of our obsession with works and performance, we read it as God being harsh and unfair. God is always saying, now come back to me. When Jesus was preaching in the New Testament, he's saying the door is open. Come on in, repent. Turn from self, turn from sin, turn from your own strength and come back in. And by faith in Jesus, we can receive the commendation of God. There's this other alternative set up between pride and humility. One way to, to kind of summarize this whole story is it's a contrast between the pride of Cain and his strength and the humility of Abel. And 1 Peter 5, 5 says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you are proud of who you are and what you've accomplished, God is not saying that your strengths are worthless and they can never be used. He's just saying you can't beat yourself in to the throne room of God with your accomplishment. He's saying humble yourself before him and recognize your need of him. We all need God no matter what we've accomplished. So God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. To the humble. That's an invitation to come in. I don't know if y'all have ever heard this, but it's purported that the captain of the Titanic said, even God can't sink the Titanic. Have y'all ever heard that before? Even God can't sink the Titanic. A lot of the engineers and builders threw around the word unsinkable, right? Very dangerous. Spoiler alert, the Titanic actually sank. I don't know if you know the whole story. But it's this great ship that was supposed to be unsinkable, and yet it sank. Pride comes before the fall. It's a story that's played out again and again. When we bow up to God, we receive judgment. He says, thy will be done. You want to be powerful on your own without me? Okay, do your own thing. But when we humble ourselves before God, when we approach him by faith and say, God, I need you, will you save me? Will you teach me? Will you apprentice me? Will you help me to follow you? God gives grace. He says, come on in. I love you. So number one, you're in a place right now where you feel like, God, your judgment is too much, I want you to hear God saying, not so, not so. Come to me, humble, and I will give you grace. Number two, trust in Jesus. Again, it's the same God. It's the same God who is both a judge of evil, but a commender of those who recognize their need. It's the same God. But we have the details. The details are beautiful. Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy. He fulfilled every Old Testament ceremony. He fulfilled every Old Testament narrative, right? Abel is like a type of Christ who died and yet his blood cries out. And the scripture is clear that everything we need is found in Jesus Christ. He, he takes our sin upon himself and he gives us his righteousness. His blood was spilled to pay for your sin and to pay for my sin. But the author to Hebrews goes on to say there's an even better story that we have. There's this theme that plays out throughout Hebrews. I'm gonna read Hebrews 11.4 again and kind of tie it together with this, this mega theme of the whole book. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith though he died he still speaks through his faith though he died he still speaks in that way he was like christ he took the place of weakness he became a sacrifice for others and his story still speaks to us his blood though cried out for vengeance right his blood cried out for god to come in and say this is wrong this can't continue to happen. There's a difference in the blood of Jesus. The very next chapter in Hebrews, in Hebrews twelve twenty four, says that we should come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to His sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The word "speaks" is one of the most repeated words in the book of Hebrews. The book opens up in Hebrews chapter eleven or chapter one. In Hebrews chapter one, says that God has spoken in many different ways, in many different times, but he's speaking in these last days by his son. Here, we're starting off the series with Abel. Abel speaks. All these Old Testament heroes still speak, but there's a better speaking even that we hear from Jesus. He speaks a better word. Hebrews eleven twenty four: the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Abel's blood cried out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out mercy. That's what we see when we approach Jesus. Are you hearing him speak to you? God is speaking to us constantly. As modern people, we want to say, yeah, God, God's silent. God doesn't talk. No, he's speaking. He's speaking through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and you invite us into relationship with you. We confess. As modern people, we often look more like Cain than Abel. Will you help us, Lord? Will you meet us in this cultural moment? Help us to see how stuck we are on our our thinking, our desires, our heart, our priorities, that we want to bow up to you in strength. Humble us, Lord. Help us to be like Abel that approaches you in weakness, that approaches you in faith. Help us to hear the better word that is spoken by your blood. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.